This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. It's wonderful to have the privilege and opportunity to speak with you again. Let us bow our heads together. Loving Father, we are grateful for the privilege of life, health, and strength, and for the opportunity to dig into your word. I pray that you would jolt your people tonight. I pray, dear Father, that hearts and minds might be open to looking at things a different way. And I pray that you would help us to begin to understand your thoughts are not our thoughts, your ways are not our ways for as high as the heavens are from the earth, so are your thoughts from our thoughts and your ways from our ways. We give you praise in advance for what we trust you can do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme of GYC is to the end. I believe, as I shared with you on last night, that we cannot reach the ends of the earth until we first reach the end of ourselves. Beloved, one of our biggest obstacles is our thinking. It's our what? In Isaiah chapter 55, Verse 7, the Bible says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Verse 8, For my thoughts are not, neither are your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than and my thoughts than your thoughts. I want to suggest to you tonight that we need a radical change in the way we think. It's not radical because it's new. What we'll talk about tonight is biblical. It is radical in the sense that we've not done it. I want to start by sharing the examples of three luminaries in Scripture. Of course, no one shines brighter than Jesus, but these individuals are most certainly scriptural luminaries. The first one is Moses. Everybody's familiar with Moses. Moses was unique because Moses understood from the time he was a child that God had a purpose for his life. Isn't that an amazing thing to know from the time that you're a little child? That God has a purpose for your life? But what Moses knew went even further than that. He didn't just know that God had a purpose for his life. He knew the specific purpose, the reason behind his birth and how God would use him. 
Moses was taught at his mother's knee that God would use him to be the deliverer of Israel. He would lead them out of Egyptian bondage into the promised land, the place that had been promised to their ancestors. Moses knew this from the time that he was a child. Along the way, Moses hit a bump in the road. He thought, he what? He thought that he would fulfill the purpose that God had for him by exercising his strength. So one day he sees an Egyptian taskmaster abusing cruelly one of his Hebrew brethren, and the Bible says that he laid hands on him. These were not holy hands. He laid hands on him and he killed the Egyptian and buried him only to discover that his Hebrew brethren and sisters did not appreciate his vision of deliverance. And so Moses, of course, goes into the wilderness, but ultimately God reaches him there from a burning bush that draws him closer into the very presence of God himself. And God reacclimates Moses. He, he retrained Moses. And now he sets him off to fulfill his purpose. Moses' life is a unique life because Moses understood his purpose. God is going to use me to deliver his people, and God is going to use me to bring his people into the promised land. But Moses' life is also unique, beloved, because Moses did not take God's people into the promised land. We all know the story. It's interesting, one time in 40 years, the Bible records Moses' sin, dealing with the murmuring and complaining, and he messed up God's beautiful picture, uh, his salvific picture. He destroyed it by not speaking to the rock, but smiting the rock. And God tells Moses, you will not go over into the promised land. Imagine with me tonight, knowing from the time that you're a child, that God has called you into existence for this purpose only. And then to hear that same God say, you will not, you cannot do it. Moses speaks to God and he's pleading his case. And God says to him, do not speak to me of it again. God tells Moses, it's, it's time for you to lay down. Time for you to lay down your sword and shield. Time for you to study war no more. And so you need to make your way to the top of Nebo. And, and Moses does that. While he's there, he has, a, and this is Patriarchs and Prophets, page 475. God is showing him essentially the history of humanity and the history specifically of his people to the crucifixion of Christ, down to the spreading of the gospel, on down to the end of time. Moses looks over and sees the physical promised land, but then God shows him something else. The darkness of hopeless despair seemed to enshroud the world 
but he looked again, this is Moses, and beheld him, speaking of Jesus' resurrection, coming forth a conqueror and ascending to heaven, listen to me tonight, escorted by adoring angels and leading a multitude of captives. He saw the shining gates open to receive him and the host of heaven with songs of triumph welcoming their commander and it was there revealed, listen, it was there revealed to him that he himself would be one who should attend the Savior and open to him the everlasting gates. I want to tell you tonight that Moses had a vision for his life and he understood what his purpose was supposed to be. But listen to me, friends. God's ultimate purpose for Moses' life far surpassed his own visions for his life. Moses didn't make it into the earthly promised land, but I think we can praise God tonight that he made it into the heavenly Canaan. And not just that, but he had privilege of swinging open the pearly gates and welcoming Jesus in as a, are you listening to me tonight? Disappointment was turned into rejoicing. That's Moses. The other story I'd like to share with you is one you are also familiar with. It's the story of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm not talking about his entire story, but in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Bible paints a picture of, of David going uh, about in his palace, and apparently he comes to either one of the windows or terraces, and he looks out and he sees the sanctuary in a tent. And David says, uh-uh, mm-mm, th- th- this is not right. It ain't right. And David has a vision birthed in him. I don't know if it was birthed on that particular day or night, but a vision is birthed that God should have a house that is unrivaled, unmatched in all the world. It should surpass all the houses of the other gods in splendor and beauty because after all, it is the house of the God of the universe, the only true God. David calls the prophet Nathan and says, listen, I've had a vision, and it's unsettled me that God is dwelling underneath a tent while I'm living in a palace of cedar. I'm going to build God a house. The prophet Nathan responds to David and says, all that is in your heart, do it. And he leaves, and I imagine that David goes to bed that night dreaming of the splendor, the magnificence, the beauty of God's house. God interrupts Nathan's sleep that night and says, I want you to go back and speak to David. Nathan comes back to David. I don't know if it was the next day, the next week. I don't know what the chronology is, but the prophet Nathan comes in to see David and says, and this is amazing. God, speaking through Nathan, says, since I brought Israel up out of Egypt and settled them in this land, no one has ever suggested building me a house. David, you are on hallowed ground. David, 
you're in a unique place because you have thought of me in a way that no one else has since I have delivered my people out of Egypt. David, I want to tell you, I'm really feeling this thing about this house. But I've got some bad news, David. You are not going to build me a house. Say, say, say what? But you just said yesterday or last week that all that was in my heart, David, you will not build God's house. Can you imagine? It must have been devastating. God says it's a good plan. In fact, it's an excellent plan and it's going to happen, but you won't be the one to accomplish it. I imagine that as Nathan continues to speak, David's head drops and his, his shoulders slink and he, he's, he's slumping down in his throne thinking to himself, why, why? But something catches his ear as the prophet Nathan continues to speak and he says, David, you have wanted to build me a house, but I will make you a house. Woo, y'all didn't hear me tonight. You wanted to build a house for me, but David, because as we used to sing in, in, in the church I grew up in, you can't beat God giving. No matter how hard you try, because the more you give, anybody know that song? The more he, the more he gives to you. So God says, David, you have decided to build me a house, but I'm going to make you a house. What does that mean, God? It means that you will become the receptacle of my son. He's going to come through your family line. The Messiah will be a part of your family, David. David breaks down. It's, it's beautiful if you've never read it. Go home tonight to your hotel room or wherever you're staying. And open up 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you will find David is not devastated. He's not disappointed. He is humbled. Who am I? David says. Who am I? I was just tending the sheep, and you went and you called me, and you anointed me and exalted me to be king over all of your people. But now this too? David had a vision for himself when he was anointed as king, I imagine, and he had an even greater vision of building God a house, but he was not disappointed. Why? Because God's vision for David surpassed his vision for himself. Are you with me tonight? The third person I want to talk to you about is Elijah. <laughs> this, this, this brother is amazing. Elijah comes out of nowhere, comes into the palace, and the, the implications or the inferences are that Elijah had spent much time in prayer, sighing and crying for the abominations that had been done in the land, and a burden developed in his heart and in his mind. He wanted to see the people of God experience repentance. He wanted to see idolatry kicked out of the land of Israel. He wanted to see the people's hearts turned away from the false worship of Baal back to the worship of the true God, Jehovah. Elijah dedicates himself to this and 
the Bible tells us that he appears on the scene and says, there will be neither dew nor rain except at my word. And then immediately he disappears and there is a manhunt, a nationwide manhunt for him. He spends about a year and a half by the brook Kareth and then he spends the rest of the famine there with the widow at Zarephath. And Elijah has dedicated himself. Elijah has sacrificed to see God's people turn back to him. You know the story. At the appointed time, he goes and he tells Ahab to gather everyone there at Mount Carmel. Fire comes down from God out of heaven. All of Israel, can you imagine the scene, beloved? Thousands upon thousands of voices. That, and this has never been heard in Elijah's lifetime. Thousands of Upon thousands of voices, the Lord, He is the God, the Lord, He is the God. It must have made the hair on Elijah's back stand up. All of Baal's prophets and priests are destroyed. Elijah goes up and he prays seven times. He's on his knees. And he sees a dark cloud, small, the size of a man's hand, or that his servant sees it and comes back and tells him. And Elijah gets up and begins to run. He runs before Ahab's chariot, supernaturally endowed. He runs before Elijah's, excuse me, before Ahab's chariot down to the city of Jezreel and he falls down exhausted. And then Jezebel's servant comes and whispers the news, her response to all that had taken place. And Elijah begins to run again into the wilderness towards the mountain of God. Elijah's life had been dedicated to reform, to revival and reformation. And Elijah is devastated. It appears to learn that after all that has transpired, there are still some who would resist the power of God. I want to share with you tonight, Elijah never fully saw the nation of Israel turn in repentance to God. But Elijah's story, I don't think anybody in here tonight feels sorry for Elijah, do you? Because you know where he is, right? The Bible says that God sent, <laughs> he sent fiery chariots to come down and translate him to heaven without seeing death. And Elijah is granted the privilege along with Moses. Whoo, help me, Lord. He is granted the privilege of coming down to encourage Jesus. Oh, how would you like that privilege tonight? To encourage Jesus. It's, it's going to be all right, Jesus. It's going to be all right. We believe in you. 
You're going to make it. We've been waiting on this. All of humanity and all of nature has been waiting on this. You're going to do it. It's going to be all right, Jesus. Elijah wanted to see revival and reformation in his lifetime, and he didn't see it, but God took him to heaven because God's vision for Elijah was higher than Elijah's vision for himself. In the book Education, page 18, and it's been such a long time, almost 17 years or what have you with GYC. I think this used to be one of the things folks used to talk about at GYC. Higher than the highest human thought can reach. Higher than the highest human thought can reach is God's ideal for His children. Godliness, God-likeness is the goal to be reached. I want to remind you, beloved, of these three individuals and tell you that what God designed for these individuals was better than what they imagined for themselves. <laughs> Help us, Lord. Here's our question. What do we imagine for ourselves? I'm going to go out on a limb tonight. And I'm going to say that there are at least two things that we imagine for ourselves. Just know this, I'm not here to make you feel good tonight. I'm here to challenge you to think. There are at least two things that we envision, that we desire for ourselves, especially this crowd. You want to know what they are? You already know what they are. Number one, soul winning. What's number one? That's what the testimonies were about. That's what GYC is all about. But the other one is closely related. Soul winning and to stop sinning. Now just stick your toes under your seats because I'm about to step on them soul winning, and to stop sinning. I'm not going to deal with both of those tonight, but I'm going to deal with the stop sinning one tonight. And I want to suggest to you a question. What if, beloved, the way to achieve what we desire is not in fact what we think it is? Nothing wrong with the goal, but what if the way to achieve the goal is not what we think? I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to, especially young men and young women, who are wrestling with their inability to live up to God's high ideals and standards. His purposes. I can't tell you how many I've spoken to 
who are discouraged and feel defeated because they look at themselves and recognize that I fall miserably short. I could say more about that, but I don't have a lot of time tonight. Turn with me to Isaiah, the 58th chapter. Isaiah chapter 58 is fascinating, beloved. Verse 1 says this, cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sin. Now, I gotta, I've got to admit to you, when I first read that, my expectation is that God is getting ready to go down a list of idolatrous practices, right? I mean, these are folks who need to see their sins. They need to understand their transgressions, and apparently they are blind to what's really going on. So God says, when you talk, you got to do it really loud. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Cry aloud. Don't spare anyone. Show my people their sins. Let them know what their transgressions are. But listen to this, verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Beloved, I want you to get what Isaiah chapter 58 is saying to us. These are not irreligious people. They're the type of individuals who plan on coming to GYC every year. They're the type of individuals who are the first ones in the church when the doors are open. They're the type of individuals who want revival and reformation in their lives. They're the type of people who want to be like God. And yet God says that in their religious round of practices and services, they have in fact missed the point entirely. It is these people that God says needs to see their sins and their transgressions. I'm scratching my head just like the people that this was written to. What do you mean, God? Verse 3, this erupts in their response to God. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and you don't see? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul and you have not taken knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast, God is responding now, you find pleasure and exact all your labors. You fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Then God asks a question in verse 5, is it such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul. Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? God says, listen, you've laid prostrate and you've prayed and you've cried and you've prayed and you've cried and you've pled with me and you have, you have, you have fasted and you've said, Lord, I'll do whatever it takes. 
But God asked the question tonight as he did from the pen or the lips of the prophet Isaiah, is this what I really desire? God begins to explain the dilemma. Verse 6, is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry, and that you bring the poor that are cast out to your house, when you see the naked, that you cover him, that you hide not yourself from your own flesh? Did you notice what the difference is? The fast that Israel was engaged in was a fast that centered around themselves. And God introduces a fast that centers on serving others. Did you get it or did you miss it this evening, beloved? Now I want you to pay attention to what God goes on to say. One fast is centered on me. Oh Lord, if I could just overcome two more sins. Lord, if I could just get rid of this besetting sin, the one that so easily besets me, and, and my prayers are consumed with me. God, help me. God, deliver me. God says, get your mind. Remember what we read in Isaiah chapter 55? It's a change in the way we. God says, get your mind off of yourself. But I want to stop sinning. Yeah, but your mind is only on you. Verse 8. <laughs> then, this is, this is when we begin to live. And, and by the way, who lived like this? Come on, beloved. Who lived like this? This is the way that Jesus lived. You remember what he said when uh, someone said, hey, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. He said, foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has? He has nowhere to lay his head. He could have certainly taken up a collection so that he could get himself a decent place to stay. But Jesus was more interested in serving others than he was in making himself comfortable. Are you listening to me tonight? Now listen to what happens in verse 8 as a result of adopting this type of selflessness. Then, then shall thy light break forth as the morning and your health will spring forth speedily. Lord, have mercy. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your reward. Have you ever considered, my dear friends, that when you're praying for your health, God might ask, why should I give you more health? You're just going to consume it on yourself like you've been doing already. But the individual who is living to bless others, listen to how this individual prays, Lord, 
Give me more years so I can continue to glorify you by serving the men, women, and children that you have laid down your life for. The servant of the Lord, I always get this mixed up, please forgive me. She says, the law of heaven is this, to live is to give. And my dear friends, all of the universe is in harmony with this law except here on planet earth. And God says, if you get into harmony with this principle, then your light, then your light will break forth as the morning and your health will spring forth speedily. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your reward. Reward. Verse 9, listen, listen, friends. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. Did you hear what I just said? I've read to my children the story of Samuel, right? And I've told them as we pray, now we're going to pray like Samuel prayed. Samuel prayed, speak, Lord, for thy servant hears. But here in Isaiah chapter 58, a different picture is painted. God says, when you live in harmony with my principle, when you live in harmony with my character, when you call, I will answer. I don't know about you. But I want God on speed dial. I want to call on the Lord and I want him to show up every single time I call on his name. And God says, I'll do that for you if you adopt this principle, if it permeates your being. Then you will call and the Lord shall answer. You will cry. <laughs> this is almost blasphemous, but it's not. It's biblical. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, this is God, here I am. Whoo! That's Samuel's prayer inverted so that God is responding to faithful, loving, selfless humanity by saying, here I am. What do you want me to do for you? What do you need from me? Thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity. If you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light arise in obscurity. Let me just get prophetic and apocalyptic for a minute here. This is when the prophetic message that we have been gifted with and blessed with by God will go forth with speed and with power. This is when the three angels' messages will arise from a place of, of, of obscurity so that we don't have to knock on doors and people say, what church do you belong to? The Seventh-day Adventist, the Seventh-day Adventist, who? Yeah, yeah, the Seventh-day Adventist. I've never heard of that. God says when we live in harmony with this principle that is outlined here in the 58th chapter of Isaiah, then our light will rise out of obscurity. People will say, I know who you are. Then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness be as the noonday. Verse 11, and the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy your soul in drought. 
when the Spirit of God is slowly being withdrawn from the earth, those who have made this principle of selfless love and service, those who have made this their objective, not separate from the person of Christ, but because it reflects perfectly who Jesus is. Those who have embraced Jesus and this same principle in their lives, when the Spirit of God is being withdrawn and there is a time of drought and a famine, God promises you will be watered. You will be watered. God will make fat your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I want to tell you tonight, religious exercises and spiritual exercises alone, there's a place for them are not the way to reach God's ideal for our lives, or perhaps it's not even the way for us to reach our own ideals for our lives. This is from Medical Ministry 239. Medical missionary work brings to humanity the gospel of release from suffering. It is the pioneer work of the gospel. Did y'all hear that? It is the pioneer work of the gospel. It is the gospel practiced. The compassion of Christ revealed. Of this work, there is great need, and the world is open for it. Our country just experienced here in the United States an opioid crisis. Anybody hear about that? What about if medical ministry involved ministering to those who are addicted? Because addicts also have families who are enduring crisis in some cases on a daily basis. Now look, I love prophecy as much as the next. Daniel, Revelation, whew, man, talk about it. But if someone is suffering from an opioid crisis, don't tell me all you've got to offer is a Revelation seminar. Did you hear what I said, friends of God? Practice the gospel. Don't just preach it. Reveal the compassion of Christ. Don't just tell people where he is in the heavenly sanctuary. Show them how he lives through you. Now I know when we talk about things like the 58th chapter of Isaiah, and we talk about ministry to the poor and what have you, some folks get discouraged. Ah, there we go, there we go. You know, we got a special work. We're not the Salvation Army. And that sounds real nice. And it's true. We are not the Salvation Army. 
I'm going to share, share with you a story. I had an elder and his wife in my church, and they were leading out in the community service department in my church. And we had a huge program where we invited the community. We were uh, doing blood pressure checks, and there was health, and we had a vegetarian taste thing going on, and we were giving out book bags. It was just before the beginning of school. We had over 300 people who came. And one of the volunteers there at this community service event was a neighbor of my elder and his wife. They had prayed for this woman to come to our evangelistic meetings, prayed for her to come to church, invited her. They had given her the flyers. They had said, just come once, you'll enjoy it. All of this, and you know she never came. But when they invited her to come and be a part of a community outreach that we were holding to be a blessing to people in the community, she showed up. They introduced me, Pastor, Pastor, this, this is our neighbor. We've been trying to get her to church for years. Came over and I greeted, we exchanged niceties, and she said this, I have so thoroughly enjoyed, and, and we were there like all day, about eight hours. She says, I have so thoroughly enjoyed myself. And this is what she said. She said, any time that you do this, I'll be here. You see, beloved, when you and I reach out to those who are underprivileged and less fortunate, it is also an opportunity to reach out to those who are privileged and fortunate and invite them to come beside us. <laughs> I hate to use this illustration, but you guys remember Jehu. Come up in my chariot. See my zeal for the Lord. That brother was crazy. I'm not suggesting that. But we, when we invite the privileged and the fortunate to come beside us and labor with us to bless and uplift humanity, they do see our zeal for the Lord. They say, man, you guys are something else. I want to be a part of this church. Self-sacrificing service, dear friends, others-centered living, which is actually Christ-centered living. Check it in Matthew chapter 25. As ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto self-sacrificial service, others-centered living, which is Christ-centered living, is God-pleasing. And I want to say this tonight. It is the path to godliness and God-likeness. We are never more like God than when we are self-sacrificing and when we are doing whatever it is that we're doing for the benefit of others. Oh, beloved, I hope you hear me tonight. You can go off in the wilderness and pray for three months and won't be a lick more like God than, than you will if you go down into the streets and into the highways and byways and give of yourself. The Bible says of Jesus, he went about doing what? He went about doing good. 
man by the name of Victor Hugo. He's the author of a book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. It's a very interesting story. He was in a concentration camp. Can you play something? Give him some sound. Praise the Lord. He was in a concentration camp, and as he was there in the concentration camp, one of his associates, and he developed a plan for escape. It's World War II. You don't want to be in a concentration camp. You want to get out. But Victor Hugo also had medical skills, and he had been servicing and ministering to those who were sick and those who were afflicted. He had been trying to give uh, or, or delivering acts of mercy to various individuals there in the camp. And one day he approached one of his comrades and he hadn't told anyone of this plan, but the man who he was ministering to, and Hugo says this man was at the very point of death. This man looked into his eyes and he said, you're leaving, aren't you? Hugo was shocked. Nobody's supposed to know that. Did somebody tell? The man took his hand and said, no one has said anything, but I can see it in your eyes. I can see it in your eyes. What did he see, beloved? He saw a man who wanted to get away. A man who had been laboring in love and serving others and blessing others who was tired and wanted the release that came from escape. Hugo says he left this man's bedside. He was perplexed. He was angry. He didn't quite understand all that was going on in his heart and in his mind. And he did something that was radical and strange. Hugo says that that night as he was wrestling and deciding, you know, what he was going to do, he decided that he would stay. Who decides to stay in a concentration camp? He decided to stay and live out, so he thought, the remainder of his days, blessing and ministering to others. He said something wonderful. He said, when I made that decision, I had peace. Peace? When you decide to die serving others, you have peace. One author who was commenting on this story says this, it is only in the line of service, listen to me my young friends, it is only in the line of service that our purpose becomes clear to us. It's not looking through the university catalog and deciding what, what course of study you're going to do. That's not how you gain clear purpose. I would suggest it's not only by spending time on your knees and saying, God, what would you have me to do? But I'm suggesting to you tonight that it is only in the line of service that our purpose becomes clear, that you and I come to the realization, this is what God has called me into existence for. Everything else becomes fuzzy because the most important thing has become clear. Beloved, those, and I got to throw this in for folks who got some rocks tonight that they want to hit me with. 
those who experience victory over sin do so because victory over sin is not their goal. Service and living like Jesus and loving as he did is their goal. And you know what you discover, my dear friends? You discover that you don't have time to think about you. Those of you who've been on a mission trip, you know what I'm saying is real. Plane touches down. Oh, the mosquitoes are so hot. Oh, Lord, what's going on? But as your hands begin to get dirty and as you begin laboring for souls and as you begin spending time with the people and as you are praying, all of a sudden the mosquitoes don't seem to matter anymore. And all of a sudden the fact that there's no air conditioning, it has no meaning absolutely in your mind whatsoever. Why? Because your thinking has been changed. Consumed with service. Consumed with loving and living like Jesus. That's what I want tonight. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.